Brian Barnett is just a regular guy. He's not a doctor. He has no legal license in any field of mental or emotional health. Brian Barnett merely shares the insights he's gained from his personal experiences for anybody who may choose to use such information as he or she personally chooses, while accepting full responsibility for his or her own individual thoughts, feelings, behaviors, and actions. Brian Barnett assumes no responsibility whatsoever for anybody's individual choice to expose himself or herself to any information that Brian Barnett shares. And by listening to this program, you're acknowledging that you, and only you, are responsible for your own thoughts, feelings, and actions. Happy Thursday, everybody. Welcome back to The Last Symptom. I'm Brian Barnett. It's a real pleasure having you here this week. TheLastSymptom.com. You know, you hear me say the same thing every single episode, just like a broken record. Every week I'm on here saying, TheLastSymptom.com is my website full of growing free resources, I say. And you should definitely run over to TheLastSymptom.com and take advantage of the resources I've made available to you there, and on and on. So this week, instead of repeating all that again, I figured I'd just give you all a break. If you'd like to schedule a one-on-one phone conversation with me, you can do it right from thelastsymptom.com. It's not really something I necessarily have to put into today's show. And besides, I'm sure you know that if you're stuck in your recovery from emotional disorder or if you feel like you need some sort of insight to help you tap into the excitement and motivation needed for authentic recovery, there's a good chance I could help you do that with a phone call. Since you're probably already aware of this, I'm not going to mention any of that today. We'll just let it go completely unsaid for this week. This is from uh, Appalachian Americans. That's the name of the Facebook group. Uh, Somebody asked the question, why are people obsessed on this group with posting pictures of what they're eating? And uh, I just got a kick out of it one guy replies this group should actually be called what's for supper and what snake is this <laughs> and what tree is this <laughs> i really like clever people <laughs> if you're a member of this group you know exactly why that's funny this group should be called what's for supper what snake is this and what tree is this It really does seem like every (laughs) third post is about a tree or about a snake. (laughs) Somebody wouldn't help identifying a snake or tree. Well, somebody actually provided an answer that I thought was not hilarious, but I thought was really brilliant in the way that she answered the question for this post. She says, It's an Appalachian polite way for one of the following. Number one, different cooks having a low-key cooking contest. Number two, dating advert. (laughs) That's something I just would not have ever occurred to me. Number three, showing the neighbors you're doing all right and not just eating fried dough. And then she goes on to say this. This is the really brilliant part. She says, the classical arts museums have tons of these from back in the day. They're called still life paintings. 
leave the people be. Now, the reason why I thought that was so brilliant is because she she kind of hit the nail on the head, didn't she? Today, people are taking pictures of their food and posting them on Facebook and on social media, every which way that you look. And uh, people in the past, artists in the past, would spend hours, hours, maybe days, painting the same sorts of things. They saw some beauty in it. And uh, so today's photographs on Facebook and stuff are, I guess, the modern-day example of that. You know, Internet memes, you come across the 100 a day, don't you? In my opinion, the Internet meme has replaced the newspaper comic strip. And if you think about the type of humor that you generally see in an Internet meme, basically what you're looking at is a Gary Larson cartoon. He was the guy, the creator of a comic strip called The Far Side. And the humor in it was just way before its time, but just genius, just genius. Really off-the-wall type humor. And uh, every single comic strip would just smack you upside the head with the very last thing on earth that you were expecting. And that's why it was so funny. But the next time you catch yourself belly laughing to an internet meme... Ask yourself, if you're somebody who knows the far side and used to read Gary Larson cartoons, ask yourself, is this not the same type of humor that Gary Larson tapped into to draw his newspaper comic strip, The Far Side? The internet meme has replaced the newspaper comic strip, and the humor in it, the humor in these internet memes are often so much uh, more effective than the comics ever were. According to this lady, which she gave me something to think about. I mean, I haven't swallowed the hook hole yet, but I think she's got a good point that the photography we see today of people taking pictures of their food is in some way related to the same things that motivated artists to paint still lifes hundreds of years ago. Interesting. Just something to think about for this week. Now, on to today's discussion. The topic for today is two parts. Does a specific diagnosis matter in your recovery? And also, is what is the formula that decides which emotional disorder we, as individuals, end up with? This was prompted by some correspondence I got to an article that I had written a while back, but uh, the person asks me, my question to you is, does any of it matter if it's the root that is most important, then why do diagnoses to a specific disorder really matter if they can all spring from situations that so many different people can relate to? I ask you this because you're one of the few people that I've encountered with simple logic and what I read from you makes sense. So here's my answer to uh, this particular person and by extension to all you. The answer is no. A specific diagnosis does not matter in the sense that the solution is the same regardless. You got to ask yourself, what is the purpose of understanding all this stuff anyway? What, what's the purpose of reading about this, listening about this, thinking about these things? What is the purpose? The purpose is to get rid of the problem, right? 
Isn't that the ultimate goal? So, in the sense that the solution to getting rid of the emotional disorder and achieving authentic emotional health is the same, in that sense, no, a diagnosis doesn't matter. All emotional disorders originate from an inaccurate, inappropriate perspective or understanding toward the nature of feelings, self, and life. And in the past, I've explained how when I talk about an inappropriate or an inaccurate perspective toward the nature of feelings, I'm not just talking about your feelings. I'm talking about when when I say the nature of feelings, I'm talking about how you perceive feelings in general. That is, the feelings of all people. Just feelings in general, not just your feelings. How about self? Well, when we talk about how you perceive yourself or self, we're talking about how you perceive the inherent nature of people in general, including yourself. And life covers the rest of it. Are there people who do not have an emotional disorder who also are in the habit of doing emotionally unhealthy things? Yes. So they're not living with an emotional disorder, but somewhere along the way, they've picked up some aspect of emotional unhealth, and they use this in their approach to life. It doesn't mean that they have an emotional disorder. They can have a perfectly accurate perspective toward the nature of feeling self in life and also be dealing with some emotionally unhealthy aspect in life. I'll give you an example of something like this. Passive aggressiveness. Now, I refer to it as passive-aggressive communication-slash-behavior style. It's just something that's learned. So a person might have a completely accurate perspective toward the nature of feeling self in life, but at the same time have picked up the passive-aggressive behavior-communication style. What does that mean? It means while they are not living with an emotional disorder specifically, they are engaging in an aspect of emotional unhealth. They've picked up, they've learned some emotionally unhealthy behavior, which is passive aggressiveness. What is the opposite of passive aggressiveness? Just so we clarify that, what is the exact opposite of passive aggressiveness? Calm, assertive. And if you'd like a A more in-depth conversation on that. I did a whole episode on it earlier this past year. Uh, I can't remember what episode that is, so you'll have to search down through the, the episodes, the titles of the episodes to find that specific episode. But, you know, there's an example of where a person um, is doing something unhealthy. It's not directly related to the distorted core beliefs of borderline personality disorder. You know, remember, emotional disorder, when we're talking about emotional disorder... The only things we can accuse it of, or I, I guess the, uh, the only things we can specifically point to the disorder and say the disorder is causing this are the things that can be traced directly back to the, the root causes of the disorder, underlying subconscious or unconscious beliefs. My feelings are inherently irrelevant and shameful, devoid of worth, and so am I. And the symptoms that this brings about come directly from those two distorted core beliefs. 
and they are numerous. But back to the discussion today. We're asking if a specific diagnosis matters, and we've said that it doesn't matter in the sense that the solution is the same no matter what, right? So what is the solution to somebody who lives with an inaccurate, inappropriate perspective toward the nature of feeling self and life? What's the cure? The cure is accurate education and insight. Accurate education and insight so that one's perspectives adjust to a more accurate understanding of the true nature of these things. What things? The nature of feelings, self, and life. An accurate perspective of the nature of feelings, self, and life naturally results in healthy feelings, healthy thoughts, and healthy behaviors. One doesn't have to try to feel, think, and behave healthfully. They just do feel, think, and behave healthfully as a naturally resulting product of having an accurate perspective and understanding of the nature of feelings, self, and life. What is emotional disorder? It's when a person has an inaccurate perspective of the nature of feeling self and life. So what is the disorder part of it? Well, the disorder part of it is when you have an inaccurate perspective, the perspective of these things, you then approach life with this inaccurate perspective of these things. The results you get back are disordered. You know, it's like trying to build a house when you misunderstand the proper way to build a house. What are you going to end up with? You're going to end up with a house that's hanging half off of its foundation. It's not been built correctly. Your approach to the whole project was off. It was, it was inaccurate. What you understood you were doing was incorrect. So there was no other possibility except for, you, for the results of your house building experiment to end up chaotic. So now we're simply, we're simply examining the reverse possibility. The reverse possibility is that the person has a precise, accurate understanding of the nature of building houses, of what is required, what, what principles are involved in building a house and ending up with a very nice house that's well-built. So when that person's perspectives or their understanding is accurate going into the project, the end result is just naturally harmonious and well done. Back to emotional disorders. When you have an inaccurate perception or understanding about the very nature of feeling self in life, you're going into life and approaching life with subtle misconceptions, what do you end up with? You end up with chaotic results. Your approach is not going to bring you the results you're trying to get because your understanding of how to get those results is subtly off. In early episodes of this show, I explained how I don't have to get up every morning and meditate and do a chant 
and hop around on one leg and, um, you know, burn incense in order to get through my day or in order to behave and be healthy during the day. Because people often want to know, is this something like, you know, a flexed muscle that I'm having to mindfully make happen day after day after day? And the answer is no. If you understand what I just told you, once you're understanding, once you truly have an accurate perspective about the nature of feeling self in life, the rest takes care of itself. The naturally resulting product of that in my life is that I don't react to things the way that I used to react to them. I don't feel the same way about things that I used to feel about them. I don't behave in the same ways that I used to behave. Why? Because my perspective, the perspective that I'm viewing these things with is completely different than what it used to be. So I simply, as a natural result, feel different about those things. I view them differently. I feel differently about them. I think differently about them. I perceive them differently. A big one for me, for example, was just understanding the difference between shame and guilt. If you'd like to know more about that, please listen to the other episodes where I painstakingly explain the difference between shame and guilt. Most of the things that I was living with that I mistakenly thought was guilt, once I understood that was shame and what shame is, I was able to reject that. So now any time I do any stupid thing or any time something happens that's outside of my control that begins to make me feel bad about myself, I can reject that. I don't perceive that the same way. I don't listen to those voices. I healthfully recognize that anything that I do that I should feel bad about is guilt. And guilt motivates me to do things differently. But as far as feeling bad about myself, that's shame. And uh, I don't experience a lot of that anymore. When I do experience it, I recognize it immediately. I'm able to reject it. What was another one that uh, really made it almost an immediate difference in my life? Well, the nature of feelings, that was almost immediate. The benefits that I got from my readjustment of my perspective on what feelings, the nature of feelings, what they are, their value, uh, when I made that adjustment in my perspective, I began to see almost immediate benefits. I began to understand how almost everything I did, everything I thought, every behavior of mine was tied in to my erroneous, my subtly erroneous perspective of the nature of feelings. I viewed them as something humiliating. And once I realized I was doing that, well, I couldn't do that anymore without being aware of what I was doing. And once I understood how destructive that was, I began very, very early on to try to reject my tendency to be controlled by that false message. So anyway, there, there's just a couple of examples of as soon as my perspective on those things adjusted, 
the result the naturally resulting feelings thoughts and behaviors almost immediately adjusted uh, themselves I didn't have to try you know to uh, to not uh, lose my temper and fly off the handle every time I perceived something was a subtle affront personal affront because I stopped seeing everything as a subtle personal affront you see that's the natural result of believing that your feelings inherently are inherently irrelevant and shameful you begin to you view everything as a personal affront because you view it as confirmation that yeah there you see there your feelings really don't matter you really don't matter and that would just send me into a fury because it was salt in a wound once I adjusted my perspective on that, once I understood that feelings are not inherently irrelevant and shameful, I was, I was merely taught to believe that. I would never have believed that if I had not been taught to believe that. And once I realized that, I began to reject that belief any time it started to rear its ugly head. The natural result of that was that when I would begin to take offense at something, the first thing I would do would be to analyze, why am I feeling this way? Where is this anger coming from? Am I perceiving that? Was, was this really a personal affront? Or is this person just an idiot? <laughs> you know, a lot of the time, that's what it comes down to. The person is just an idiot. It's got nothing to do with you personally at all. Uh, people say and do stupid things. Why? Because they're stupid, <laughs> not because of who you are. It's because of who they are. So that was a major benefit. I mean, just a really quick turnaround in my personal experience in my authentic recovery from borderline personality disorder. Now, moving on, a specific diagnosis does, does matter in the sense that every subtle aspect of what is going on with you personally matters. What am I talking about? Well, think about this. Emotional disorder, in part, involves believing that you know yourself when you really don't. You see, people who don't genuinely like themselves do not want to get to know themselves. And what is the root cause of emotional disorder? Well, part of it is an inappropriate, inaccurate perspective or understanding about the nature of self. And your perspective, your subconscious or unconscious perspective about yourself is that you're inherently irrelevant and shameful, devoid of worth. What's the natural result of living with that as your foundation perspectives? The natural result is that you, you can't like yourself. It's not that you just don't like yourself. You can't like yourself. You cannot like something that you perceive is inherently devoid of anything worth liking. So, people who don't genuinely like themselves have no natural desire to want to get to know themselves. You know, one of the most fascinating things for me with all of this is how however you naturally feel toward other people and whatever effect this has on you and your behavior and your thoughts, this is the exact same approach 
we use toward ourselves. I don't think a lot of people stop and really have light bulb moments about this. But let's think about it for a minute. If there's a guy at work that just annoys me to high heaven, I don't invite him over for supper. I don't try to get to know him and his kids. I don't confide in him. I don't share more about myself than I absolutely have to in order to just be able to work around him and get my work done. You know, it's a, it's a, it's a means to an end. I got to work with this guy. I just got to soldier through. But, you know, I'm not sharing my phone number with him. I'm not getting into uh, deep conversations with him. I'm, I don't care what his per- political I- ideology is. I don't care what kind of car he drives. I don't care what he does outside of work. I just want to you know, get through the day and then get away from him. I avoid this guy. I try not to think about him. So people with emotional disorders are taking the same approach toward themselves. Think about that. Secretly, they annoy and irritate their own selves, and they don't like themselves. So are they naturally inclined to want to get to know themselves better, intimately? No, of course not. Do they want to understand all the subtle things that make themselves who they are? Why they do what they do? Why they feel the way they do? Why their opinions are what they are? No, they don't want to dig in any deeper into somebody that just irritates the snot out of them. So we often talk about how one of the primary problems that borderline personality disorder, by its very nature, creates is a profound obstruction to ever being able to experience genuine intimacy, right? What is intimacy? It's the revealing of one's authentic inner emotional self to another. Now, how often have you connected the dots and seen for yourself that this obstruction to intimacy does not just exist toward other people? It applies equally to each individual's ability to be intimate with himself or herself as well. So back to the original point I was trying to make. Knowing the specifics of what you're personally dealing with is important in the sense that it requires you to get intimate with yourself and develop an intimacy with yourself merely involves getting to know yourself better than anybody else knows you. You're going to see why this is relevant in today's discussion as we go on. But before we go on, let's talk for a minute about this word diagnosis. Because I know what you're thinking. You're thinking that when I use the word diagnosis, I'm talking about somebody with a plaque on their wall that says they've been to school for so many years, sitting you down, and officially pronouncing that you, Tina Smith, have borderline personality disorder, or you, Bob Smith, you have narcissistic personality disorder, right? Well, scratch that from your thoughts, because 
you know, how many times have I told you that I saw at least a dozen professional psychologists for two years and not one of them diagnosed me correctly? If you can't learn something from that, I don't know what to tell you. (laughs) If you think that their diagnosis of you is dead on accurate all the time, or even most of the time, after I just told you that story, I don't know what to tell you. The lesson you should be learning from that, you're choosing not to learn. And I'm not the only one who's had this experience, by the way. Thousands of my listeners know exactly what I'm talking about. The, the whole system is flawed. This is how it works. You go to see a therapist or a psychologist. They have one hour set aside for you. They have 45 or 40 minutes of talking time set aside for you. If you're using insurance, by the end of that 40 minutes of having, you know, they've never known you, they've never met or talked to you in their entire life, and you come and sit down in front of them, in 40 minutes they have to tell, they have to have something to tell the insurance company. That's your diagnosis. So the first therapist I saw, within 40 minutes, and by the way, her specialty was another thing, not borderline personality disorder. So she specialized in something else. By the end of our 40 minutes together that we had never talked in ever, by the end of that 40 minutes, guess what she diagnosed me with? She diagnosed me with what her specialty is. Of course she did. She had to have something to tell the insurance company. So she sends that to the insurance company. From then on, I'm working on the, the misguided, the false assumption that her diagnosis is what I'm actually dealing with. Now, I leave her. I go to see other professional therapists and psychologists. They ask me, have you ever seen a therapist before? I say, yeah, this lady over in Newtown, PA. Did she diagnose you with anything? I say, yeah, she diagnosed me with such and such. Do they question that? No, they don't question that. They run with it. <laughs> so now they're working on the false assumption that this, it, this diagnosis that she gave me within the first 40 minutes of us ever meeting is the actual thing I'm dealing with. This is why I tell you that the system is flawed. They, they did no digging. They didn't question her diagnosis. It was just whatever she had said. That's the diagnosis, which just happened to be her specialty. I mean, come on, give me a break. Do you know how I figured out that I had borderline personality disorder specifically? I've, I've told this before, but I'll tell it again. I was dating a girl named Lolly, who's from Georgia, the country, not, not the U.S. state. So Lolly was uh, a, a housemaid, basically. But she loved to read, and she loved to read about emotional health and psychology. And she was reading about borderline personality disorder, and she came to me with this book. She said, Brian, this is you. This is you. You've got to look at this. And I said, no, no, I already know what my diagnosis is. But whoever told you that is wrong, she said. They're just wrong. It doesn't match you at all. This is you. Well, 
Listen, I was blinded by the same misguided, foolish hero worship that many of you are of thinking that these people who have gone to school and have paid money, so much money for their careers, must know. They must know. And Lolly kept nagging me about it. Brian, you got to read this. So she ended up just leaving the book at my apartment. And out of curiosity or boredom, I don't know which one, one day I picked that book up. And it was like getting hit by a bolt of lightning. I immediately knew that Lolly was right. That what I was reading described precisely the whatever the thing was that I was dealing with, this was it. And that my therapist had been full of shit. <laughs> and that all the psychologists and ther- therapists had been full of shit. <laughs> so when I talk about diagnosis, I don't believe I don't believe that the professional community has one iota of ability to properly diagnose anybody. There are too many broken forces in play for you to get an accurate diagnosis from them. This is why it's so important for you to take your recovery into your own hands. The therapists and the psychologists there that, that are out there, the good ones, you need them. They, they provide many things that you need. A specific diagnosis from them is not one of them. Now, just last week, I got into the whole discussion about how people accuse me all the time of uh, saying that uh, people shouldn't see therapists and that sort of thing. It's a lie. I've never said that. In fact, just a few episodes back, I specifically said that every single person fitting a certain criteria needs to be seeing a therapist or a psychologist. When I point out the professional community's um, faults, I'm pointing to them as a group of people, not as individuals. Within that group, there are fantastic therapists and psychologists. You need to be searching out for them. My recommendation is to take everything the professional community as a group skeptically. And when you go to find a therapist or a psychologist, shop around. Find the one that fits, the one that really seems to know what they're talking about, the one who places importance in their choice of wording, the ones who seem to have true insight. You know, that is, if you're looking for a magic ingredient, that is the magic ingredient, insight. And they're no different than plumbers, bankers, carpenters, mechanics. They're not. They're not any different. And by the way, doctors aren't any different. Surgeons aren't any different. You know, when you're going to have a serious surgery that could kill you, do you just take the first surgeon? I wouldn't. I would find the surgeon who, you know, people describe him as an artist. That's the guy I want. I don't want the guy that just come out of uh, medical school. So my advice here is nothing outrageous. Or completely off the wall. It's it's rational advice. It's advice based on my personal experience. And it's not meant in any way to insult 
the very excellent psychologists and therapists that are out there who some of them I personally have to thank for setting me in the right direction to my own recovery. So uh, I feel like maybe I don't say that enough. But now let's get into the main point of this part of today's discussion. If the underlying issue is the same for everybody with emotional disorders, for example, people with narcissistic personality disorder, people with borderline personality disorder, if they're living with the same causes for their disorders, then what determines which emotional disorder we personally end up with? What is the formula that decides that I end up with, emo- with uh, borderline personality disorder, for example, and my father has narcissistic personality disorder? Well, let's start from the very beginning again. What is the foundation of narcissism? The foundation of narcissism is an inappropriate inaccurate perspective of the nature of feelings, self, and life. I feel like kind of like a broken record tonight. Specifically, they feel that feelings are inherently irrelevant and shameful, devoid of worth, and therefore so am I. You probably know why I'm chuckling, because earlier when we were talking about what determines what an emotional disorder is, I said this, this exact same thing. Now, what is the foundation of borderline personality disorder? The foundation of borderline personality disorder is an inappropriate, inaccurate perspective of the nature of feelings, self, and life. Specifically, that feelings are inherently irrelevant and shameful, devoid of worth, and therefore so am I. Both disorders are built on the exact same thing. So why does one person end... And by the way... If you're wondering how I can prove this, here's how I can prove it to you. My father, who is a narcissist, well, I shouldn't say that because it equates his disorder with him. My father, who has narcissism, cannot teach me anything he doesn't personally believe. Where does my disorder come from? It comes from learning from my father what he personally believes. Right? Because how do we get our emotional disorders? We get them from observing our parents' attitudes, right? We observe our parents' attitudes because the attitudes that they live with don't lie. So they can say anything. We're not listening to what they're saying. We're observing their attitudes. Whatever their attitudes say about feeling self and life, that's what we adopt, as what we personally believe, because this is happening between the ages of zero and five years old. So my father can't teach me anything through his attitude that he doesn't personally believe and live with himself. Do you see that? And my father has narcissism, and I have borderline personality disorder. How does that happen? He lives with the exact same fundamentally flawed emotional foundation perspectives that that I ended up with and I ended up with borderline personality disorder but he has narcissism how does that happen well first of all you have to understand clearly and accurately what an emotional disorder that is the way it behaves is the symptoms of emotional disorders 
are simply the result of what most people refer to as coping mechanisms. And this is terminology that I accept and use myself. Coping mechanisms. So imagine a child whose parents make him feel shame every time he expresses or reveals his feelings. The child knows he can't keep allowing his feelings to be seen by the outside world because it always results in shame, intense humiliation. As human beings, we quickly learn to avoid anything that causes us discomfort and pain. So what does it mean for us in this case? It means that the child may decide to live life hiding his real feelings. He hides them and he fakes different feelings that work in his favor that do not cause him to feel the, this excruciating humiliation that is shame. But the feelings that he's faking are not truly what he's feeling in any given moment. So this approach that he has adopted to getting through his childhood and avoiding pain, avoiding the pain of shame, this is what is called a coping mechanism. So he's figured out a method to deal with this issue and get by and stay safe. And he continues to use it every time he finds himself in this situation for all the time that he's stuck living in this environment. Now, when we're born as people, are we all born with the exact same natural personality type? Of course we're not. You, you already know we're not. From the day we are born, and in fact, even while we're still in the womb, we already have a personality type that is an inherent part of us. Do you remember what inherent means? It just means that it's an inseparable part of the thing. Ice is cold, fire is hot. You're never going to find hot ice. You're never going to find a cold piece of burning log <laughs> because that contradicts the very nature, the very inherent nature of what fire is. So we're born with an inherent personality type. We're just born with it. And as I've explained it before, I can go to any barn and look at any big litter of puppies that are just born, that they've just been born. If I observe them long enough, I'll be able to plainly distinguish these puppies with their different unique personality types that they were just naturally born with. Now imagine these are puppies we're talking about, and they've not had any life experiences yet. So their personality type wasn't formed by life. I mean, they weren't born just a blank slate. And their personality didn't come about by their interactions with the outside world. No, they were born with their personality type. It's inherently a part of them. So if this is true for puppies, how much truer is this for human children? The natural personality type that you're born with does not change. The personality type that I was born with is still the personality type that I live with. When I've gone through all my experiences, my personality type, the natural inherent personality type I was born with was still there below, beneath everything. It informed and influenced the way I approached 
these different circumstances and situations. It still influences and and informs the way that I live my life, the way I feel about things to a certain extent, the way I think about things. So this is what explains why one person settles on the coping mechanisms that belong to borderline personality disorder, while another person settles on the coping mechanisms that belong to narcissism. Do you see that the problem, the underlying issue is the same? A person's approach to that same issue is slightly different. And why? Because they're different people. Their personalities are different. Their underlying personality type is influencing the approach they take to the same problem. So they don't, these two different people don't approach the problem with the same spirit, nor do they choose the exact same coping mechanisms to survive the same painful situation. You know, they're even looking at the same situation and interpreting it, interpreting the right way to approach the problem differently in their subconscious mind. They're each arriving at different conclusions about what it all even means or communicates about how they need to handle it. The cause is the same for both. Their approach to dealing with the problem is slightly different, which results in different conclusions in their minds about the best way to view it and handle it, which means different outcomes and approaches to life. My father, his personality type, settled on the coping mechanisms of narcissistic personality disorder. My natural inherent personality type said the best way to handle this problem, the same problem, the same painful things that I'm facing that my father faced, my personality type said the best way to handle this is with borderline personality disorder coping mechanisms. Incidentally, coping mechanisms that we develop in our youth are ingenious. And if you believe in God, as I do, I believe that it's just ingenious that God protected us with this ability as children to develop these coping mechanisms as feeling creatures, you know, as emotional creatures to uh, put in place these coping mechanisms to keep ourselves safe and to get through our childhoods. You might be saying, well, it wasn't very loving of God <laughs> to allow that to happen in the first place. But, you know, that's a conversation for another time. We're talking about free will. We're talking about uh, lots of different principles and laws that have to allow this to be the way it is. But as adults, what is the great thing about being an adult? The great thing about being an adult is that once we recognize that these coping mechanisms are only disrupting our lives now because our circumstances have changed. We're not in that same environment. We recognize that a lot of the things we believed were false. We can change them, can't we? So he's given us all the tools we need to, to um, get back on track 
and to finally begin to uh, enjoy authentic emotional health if we do the work. You know, he's given us the tools. But my point here is that uh, coping mechanisms that we develop in our youth subconsciously are just ingenious. They really do keep us safe and allow us to make it into adulthood with our sanity intact. The problem is that we leave that environment and our circumstances change. We leave that toxic, false environment and we go out into the real world and the coping mechanisms that we've long since built up complete trust and reliance on no longer protect us. You see, they were perfect for our previous circumstances. Once we leave those circumstances, they're no longer perfect, are they? They only interfere with life. Your inability, for example, to experience authentic or genuine intimacy because of these coping mechanisms do not translate well at all to marriage or to dating or to any romantic relationship. It can't be allowed to, to remain. But as I said, uh, as an adult, you have a unique, as, a, as an adult free agent who has uh, developed, who has grown and developed to your maximum potential, you are now in an amazing position to undo the damage that was done to you as a child and to begin experiencing genuine intimacy and authentic emotional health. So you can choose to undo or to voluntarily surrender these coping mechanisms that now only interfere with life, disrupt life to the point uh, that they only cause chaos, frustration, and endless pain. And you can begin to surrender and uh, enjoy emotional, true emotional health. Ladies and gentlemen, that is the program today. As I said, I'm not going to mention thelastsymptom.com this week because, you know, you hear it every week, and I just thought I'd give you guys a break. And, you know, I, I really don't need to remind you every single week that thelastsymptom.com is where you can take advantage of all the free resources I provide or schedule a one-on-one -on -one phone conversation with me right from thelastsymptom.com. Um I just felt like this week I would I would let that go. I wouldn't mention it, and uh, we'll just leave that completely unsaid until the next episode. I hope you're having a wonderful week. I hope you're all staying safe out there. I hope you're staying positive. I hope you're using this time for productive and constructive things. I'm trying to follow my own advice there. I've been staying very busy, and uh, I just want you to know that I think about all of you frequently, even though I don't know you personally. I do think about you frequently. Remember, I was once where you are, um, or my ex-wife was once where you are, and I empathize with her greatly. And so if you're somebody out there who cares about somebody with borderline personality disorder, I'm able to view the thing from your perspective as well. And I, I often think about you as well, and... Uh, during the week, what plays through my mind is uh, what do uh, people need to hear? 
What's the best way that I can reach them? Personal circumstances or issues might they be dealing with that I need to address? So, uh, you know, it sounds corny, but I do. I think about all of you often, and I want the best for all of you. So no matter how hard things are for you personally, if you're very, you know, if you're struggling out there financially or anything, uh, one thing that my mentor, Dave, always said that always brought me great comfort, but it was very succinct and brief, was that he would say, hang in there, Brian. Hang in there. You know, it, it offered no solution, but it was heartfelt. And those words would echo in my head in the worst moments of my life. So let me just parrot the words that he used to say to me, to you. Hang in there. Hang in there. You're on the right track. It takes time. Be patient and understanding with yourself. Remember how we talked earlier about how however we view other people and we interact with them, that's how we interact with ourselves? Well, you need to be more patient with yourself than you'd be with anybody else. You need to be more patient and understanding and compassionate with yourself than you would be with anybody that you genuinely cared about. Why? Because we're trying to get you to a place where you genuinely care about yourself. So, you hang in there. 